First, a program note. The following podcast includes adult situations and language. After crossing the country twice in a painstaking effort to build a murder case against Sam Little, Los Angeles Police Detective Mitzi Roberts returned home to learn she had caught a lucky break. The ongoing review of cold cases for secondary DNA evidence had connected another case to Little. Carol Alford's body had been found discarded in an alley in 1987. She had been strangled, and the case was never solved. But now DNA found on her clothing during a re-examination of the evidence had been matched to Little. This brought the number of murders he was now linked to in Los Angeles to three. In Robert's mind, that meant one thing. Game over. So when the hit came in on Carol Alford, obviously I'm I'm extremely happy and excited to get it because I know beyond any doubt now that I'm going to take this to the DA's office and this case is going to be filed and finally we're going to get murder charges filed on Sam Little. Um, I know the case is strong because all the all the work we've done on the front end of the case, um, I, there's no doubt in my mind, not only is it going to be filed, but that, that he's never getting out. I'm Michael Connolly, and you're listening to Murder Book. This season, our story is called The Women Who Stopped Sam Little. So far, we've been on a road trip with Detective Roberts as she's crossed the country on Sam Little's trail. But now we've reached the end of the road the point where Sam Little goes to trial and faces a judge, a jury, and a prosecutor as relentless as Roberts. He had gotten away with everything for so long. All I felt at that moment was pure evil. end of the day, it took a bunch of women to bring him down. Thanks to Audible for supporting Murder Book. Audible has plenty of content to discover, including my audiobooks. Sign up for the Audible Plus holiday offer for $4.95 a month for your first six months. Visit audible.com slash murderbook or text murderbook to 500-500. Carol Alford was 41 years old and had a family. She fell into Sam Little's orbit only because she had a drug problem. She had a job at the time, and she was, uh, according to her, her daughter and everything that I've read, she was responsible, and she was a good mother. She just had this one downfall, and that was, you know, some sort of addiction to most likely cocaine and unfortunately it led to her meeting up with Sam. We know he preyed on women that had um, some sort of a vice, whether it be alcohol or drugs. And a lot of times the prostitution is just sort of the means to the end and it just sort of made the hunt easier for Sam Little because these girls are just like standing on a corner in a bar and then he just offers them um, the drug of their choice or alcohol or whatever. What was unique in 
Carol's situation was she was not a prostitute. She had she didn't have a very extensive arrest record and what she was arrested for was like theft crimes and she had been arrested prior for um possession of a controlled sub- substance um but it wasn't extensive and there was no prostitution. So this was this made me think with with this particular case that he preyed on her based on her her weakness of being a drug user and offering her that and that's why she would go with him now with a third murder linked to little roberts went back to see deputy district attorney beth silverman and this time there was no objection from any supervisor in the major crimes unit. Three counts of murder were filed against Little in 2013. As he had when detectives interviewed him in Kentucky, Little denied the charges and pleaded not guilty. The following year, Silverman took the case to trial. With Roberts sitting by her side at the prosecution table, Silverman laid out a case that had been carefully choreographed with the evidence collected by Roberts and her partners over the previous year. Remember, there were no eyewitnesses to any of these murders. It was primarily a circumstantial case. But the step-by-step blending of the science of the three DNA hits with the testimony of three survivors of Sam Little assaults, that is, the two women from Pasigula, Mississippi, and one of the victims from the San Diego case, plus the police officers involved, Darren Fasaja from Mississippi, Wayne Spees from San Diego, Sue Antonucci, who was on the first interview of Little, and, of course, Mitzi Roberts. They all composed a formidable case against Little. This is Beth Silverman. It was one of those cases where it was... um, it's like everything, he had gotten away with everything for so long, and then little by little, like, everything just sort of lined up. Like, we did our homework, we did our preparation, and everything just sort of fell into place. Silverman calls it pattern evidence, using past behavior to give the jurors an understanding of what had happened to the victims who did not survive and could not speak for themselves prosecutors and, and, and police and, and, and the public in general have this opinion that, oh, you know, if, if this person was a prostitute, you know, she's not going to necessarily be a credible witness. Well, that's not necessarily true. And again, when you are able to support their testimony with similar testimony from similar victims, you know, it does paint a very, very strong picture. And, you know, it, it all depends, I think, on how, again, how you look at the case, whether you realize what you're dealing with um, in that you have a serial killer on your hands who's been emboldened all these years and gotten away with it over and over again, and whether or not you're going to put the work in to make it a strong case. There, there was a very long trail of, of victims to draw from. Roberts did not sit at the prosecution table twiddling her thumbs after handing the case off to Silverman. There was still work behind the scenes to do, and most important to that work were the relationships she had built with the surviving victims and helping to convince them that their testimony was important and needed and noble. All the women had left their street lives behind and were hesitant about going public with it. 
They had told Roberts things their own families didn't know. So, you know, it's very difficult to convince women right. who have been victimized that this time they're going to be treated differently when they were treated so shabbily the first time around. Like, why should this be any different? Now I've sort of, you know, decades have passed and I've become a different person and I've tried to put that behind me and you want me to come out there and be subjected to that again and, you know, rip the, rip the, the, the Band-Aid off and start all over again. So you really have to also know how to talk to people and form relationships with women who are distrustful for many, many reasons, whether it's because they grew up, you know, black in the South or because they had a background as a prostitute or because they weren't believed by law enforcement or a prosecutor or because somebody didn't really understand the import of what they were saying and didn't take them through. I mean, there's a whole, you know, we could talk about that for days. So, you know, that's a whole other part of the equation besides doing the actual investigation, the footwork, and the actual work that needs to take place and digging them up. Then you have to form a relationship and build trust with these people. So, you know, when these two women from Pascagoula at the last minute were thinking, you know, we're not, we don't really want to fly all the way out to Los Angeles. You know, a lot of it was about reframing it so that it was, you know, don't you think enough time has passed that it's time to sort of rewrite this history that, you know, didn't go down the way that it should have and speak on behalf of maybe not just yourself this time, but these other women who can't speak for themselves and, you know, kind of reclaim that power for yourselves and, you know, rewrite that history so when you walk out of the courtroom this time, you know, you leave it all there and... You know, Missy was a pro at doing that. As it turned out, very few people attended the trial other than the families of the three victims. Sam Little, despite being charged with three murders, was still below the radar and intensive media attention that would surround him a few years later. The trial did not get the kind of daily coverage reserved for criminals and crime that captured the media zeitgeist. Most media outlets waited for a verdict before reporting on the case. The paper of record, the Los Angeles Times, published an extensive story on the testimony of surviving victims who came from different parts of the country to testify against Little. But later we give the verdict only six paragraphs. Even law enforcement was not showing much interest, despite the trail of crime documented by Detective Roberts and her team. Silverman and Roberts had hoped investigators would come to the trial and get a look at Sam Little and see if the crimes described by witnesses and presented by the prosecution matched their own cold cases. That outreach would in a few years be key in the clearing of dozens of murders, but at the time of the trial, there weren't many takers. There was very little um, interest from most of the law enforcement officers across the country that we contacted. I even contacted a a DA, a female DA in San Diego, to assist me in trying to get certain files to be able to put together the San Diego cases. And she basically sent me an email saying, like, I'm really too busy and, you know, why do you keep bothering me? So we had a – it was interesting because there was a – nowhere near the – attention that Sam Little has garnered post-trial at the time that we were actually uh, trying him and putting his case together. 
In prior trials, Sam Little testified in his own defense to positive results. He beat a murder case in Florida, and in San Diego, a kidnapping and attempted murder case resulted in a hung jury, leading to a favorable plea bargain. Would he testify in the L.A. case? We'll talk about the defense after this word from our sponsors. If you're looking for new ways to be entertained, inspired, and informed, you should check out Audible's newest plan, Audible Plus. You get full access to Audible's Plus catalog, which includes thousands and thousands of originals, audiobooks, and podcasts that spread across genres like true crime, suspense, comedy, science fiction, and a lot more. Now is the best time to try Audible Plus. The holiday offer is Audible's best offer of the year. It's only $4.95 a month for your first six months. After your first six months, it's only $7.95 a month to download and stream thousands of audiobooks, originals, and podcasts included in the Audible Plus plan. Visit audible.com murderbook or text murderbook to 500-500. I recently listened to an audiobook on Audible. It was called Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. It is read by Adam Lazar White. Cosby's is a new voice in crime fiction, and what I loved about this audiobook is that it's a story that keeps moving, keeps you involved, while at the same time it is a reflection of our culture and our, and our times. Ostensibly, it's about a getaway driver, but it's really about so much more. It's really about life and the pressures that lead people to make the choices they make. I really enjoyed it. Visit audible.com slash murderbook or text murderbook, all one word, to 500-500 and let Audible become your playlist for life. After a more than 40-year run of violence and murder, Sam Little was finally facing his most formidable challenge to his freedom. Detective Mincy Roberts and Deputy District Attorney Beth Silverman had built a case against him with little room for a defense. Little resorted to third-party culpability, the old somebody-else-did-it defense. Of course, Roberts and Silverman had anticipated that from the start of the investigation and had Sam Little himself on audio record undercutting that defense when he denied ever being with the first two victims in the case. These cases kind of um, follow somewhat of a, um, a pattern as well in terms of what the defense does with them. So it's always um, some other guy did it. Like my guy might have had sex with her, but some, uh, somebody else came along and, and murdered them. And so, you know, that argument, there's no eyewitnesses to these crimes. So it's all about the circumstantial evidence. But that defense only goes so far, um, especially once you start tracking down the other victims. And we had some really good prior crimes pattern evidence. The defense had argued against the inclusion of references to Sam Little's past crimes the pattern evidence that Mitzi Roberts had come up with. Judge George Lomelli limited the scope of it but allowed the surviving victims to testify. I actually think the trial could have lasted months instead of weeks if the prosecution had been allowed to use all that it had. 
So the ladies told their stories to the jury, and when each was finished her testimony, she was hugged on her way out of the courtroom by the family members of the three victims who didn't survive. There was little in the case for the defense to challenge other than the fact that the DNA matches did not prove conclusively that Sam Little was the killer, only that he had been with the women. The hope, apparently, was that at least some of the jurors would be unable to make that leap from DNA match to guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It seemed that the only real question was whether Sam Little would take the stand and say, I didn't do this. A little backstory here. I would say there's never any love loss between a detective and a suspect, especially when the crime is murder. But most often things remain civil. Always maintain civility with the suspect because you never know when the suspect might open up or drop something that is case meaningful into what is perceived as a casual conversation. The detectives I have researched my books with, including Missy Roberts, always tell me that it's best to let the suspect lose his cool, not you. Well, the anecdotal evidence is that both Missy Roberts and Beth Silverman got under Sam Little's skin. There were frequent outbursts in the courtroom, one time with Little yelling at Roberts for calling him a rapist. That label seemed to outrage Little more than being called a murderer. This all goes to me saying that the two women at the prosecution table were hoping beyond hope that Sam Little would take the witness stand in his own defense. Silverman said she was locked and loaded with Little's prior crimes and statements that could be brought forward and used to question him should he decide to take the stand. I could imagine if I was his lawyer, I wouldn't want to put him on the stand because he talks and talks and talks. And we had multiple statements, whether it was during the extradition process when we brought him back to Los Angeles and he started, you know, talking to the, uh, the, the law enforcement officers that brought him back and making comments, whether it was to Wayne Spees and those guys in San Diego on their way to book him. He can't shut up, which I think we've seen um, much of lately. Um, he likes to talk, and he thinks that everybody is his audience. And he made a lot of statements that we put on in our case. So um, it would have been a, a lot of fun if he had gotten on the stand. Let's just put it that way. For both Mitzi and I. In her arsenal was the interview conducted with Little shortly after his arrest in Louisville, Kentucky, the interview where he denied knowing the victims or having sex with them. You know, the good thing about having him say, yeah, I, know, I don't know these women and I never had sex with them, is then it's sort of like, well, how do you blend DNA one after another after another? But it was not to be. Sam Little decided not to testify in the case. The podcast reached out to his defense attorney to discuss that decision and the defense case, but so far has not gotten a response. From there, the case went to the jury, and after a day of difficult deliberations, the 12 jurors delivered their verdict. It was guilty on all charges. Sam Little's run had come to an end. We spoke to Melody Montgomery, who was on Sam Little's jury, and her take on the trial and her experience confirmed the importance of the hard work Missy Roberts had put in on the case, the tracking of Sam Little, and the tracing of victims more than 30 years back. When the survivors showed up, 
I knew without a shadow of a doubt based on the look in his eyes with each of them. And there was kind of a, a, a giggle with one of them or kind of like a, a under scoff kind of uh, with one of them. And I just, I just knew he had this, uh, he had this look with, with each of the survivors identical that was kind of almost a, I don't know, God damn it, I wish I'd killed you, bitch, kind of look. He was yeah. not happy that they were there. He was very unhappy that they were there. Montgomery, at the time a 31-year-old chef who worked at the Hollywood Bowl, grew emotional during the survivor's testimony. That was one of the hardest parts of the trial. When the three women came in, I wanted to hug them so bad because of what they'd been through and because they had to sit there and face him again. Um, and yeah, because through time, prostitutes just get put off to the side. They're people too. Montgomery can't forget the moment from the trial when Little looked over at the jury box and saw her growing upset while one of the surviving victims testified. It was then that she says she saw the monster that Sam Little's victims must have seen. When he looked at me, when the witnesses were on the stand, because I got emotional, because, I mean, a woman telling you about how she was brutally beaten and left in a ditch, you know, or it, it just, it got me emotional. I didn't cry, per se, but, you know, welted up. And the look that he gave me was just pure evil, all I felt at that moment was pure evil. It made me feel gross when he looked at me. I was just like, oh, it was so uncomfortable. There was no life in his eyes. It was just hate. When it came time to deliberate the verdict, Montgomery was surprised that the jury's first vote was not unanimous for guilt. It was a huge debate. There was a, there was a chalkboard and then there was a dry erase board and we were all writing notes and comparing and contrasting. And there were, I want to say, two or three very conservative-like people that just didn't believe the evidence. It just doesn't make sense. And the rest of us had to jump up and, no, but look. And we were writing graphs and charts. I don't remember how long it took, but it felt like an eternity. The jury worked through the evidence, and the last vote of the day was unanimous. Guilty. The final vote was unanimous, but, yeah, it, it, it took a while to get through it because there was a huge argument. I mean, I understand what the argument was. I mean, you have to go in and beyond any, you know, shadow of a doubt, be able to say, I feel this is exactly what it is. And for whatever reason, those people had doubt. Melody Montgomery has tracked Sam Little in the years since the trial and knows that the verdict was confirmed by Sam Little's own words when he eventually confessed to the murders of the three women in Los Angeles and dozens and dozens more. From what she saw and heard at the trial, she knew that there were more victims. It didn't think it would be that many, but I'm not surprised at all. 
We're going to take a break here, and then we'll come back with the sentencing of Sam Little. My new book is out this week, and I want to thank my publisher, the Hachette Book Group, for sponsoring the podcast with this message about the book. From the number one New York Times bestselling author, Michael Connolly, the Lincoln lawyer is back. This time, Mickey Holler is taking on his toughest client ever, himself. Framed for murder, Mickey will call upon every courtroom skill he has. But a not guilty verdict won't be enough. He needs to find the real killer. That's the law of innocence. Michael Connolly can flat out tell a story, raves the Boston Globe. Read the new Lincoln lawyer novel, The Law of Innocence, available now in hardcover, ebook, and audio, wherever books are sold. And now back to the podcast. For Prosecutor Silverman, it was a case that was won before a single juror had even been seated. The prep work by Mitzi Roberts and her partners made it all but impossible to lose. We all got lucky in this case that we wound up with Mitzi. It was like a a train coming down the railroad tracks, and it was just, we didn't didn't really spend too much time, um, spend too much time, you know, thinking, oh, God, what if this doesn't go our way? I mean, it was, it's, she put, she, we put in the work. She put in the investigative work that was necessary to make an extremely strong case. If we had lost it, it would have been totally, totally uh, you know, on me, having nothing to do with her, because she gave, she gave me everything a prosecutor could want. You have a big responsibility if you're going to take on these kinds of cases. You have a big responsibility because, you know, if we, if we don't do our job, this is what happens. Sam Little walks out the door, and now he's, you know, even more emboldened and um, goes on to commit more murders and destroy more people's lives and, and you know, completely ruin families and, and terrorize people. So, and it was going on, you know, at this time in the 80s where there was this huge crack cocaine epidemic going on in South L.A., and so we had actually... And looking back now, a number of serial killers that were operating at the same time in the same communities, uh, we didn't know until decades later with the advent of DNA that this was the case. So, you know, at, at one point, you know, it's a huge responsibility to take these cases on, but I kind of also, you know, at the end with Mitzi, we felt like we, we, we kind of, you know, we made the justice happen. Like, we... we you know, with our actions and, and the work that went into the case and the breadth of the investigation that she conducted, I think it was like we couldn't lose. It was not lost on anyone in the court or familiar with the case that two women sat at the prosecution table and that most of the key witnesses against Sam Little were women as well. The criminal justice system doesn't always, doesn't always, uh, guaranteed justice. And, you know, Mitzi and I, as we would be sitting next to each other uh, in, in court every day, we would often think about, talk to each other and, and joke about the fact that at the end of the day, it took a bunch of women to bring them down. Like I said, she and I, we just totally understood what we had on our hands. We knew, you know, that we had to make it as solid a case as, as possible and that there was no limit to the investigation that, you know, we just had to dig and dig and dig and dig uh, until we reached cement, until there was nothing left to dig for. Juror Melody Montgomery counts herself among those women who brought Sam Little down. I'm really proud of myself for being one of the people that helped 
put him behind bars. One of her best memories of the trial came after the verdict was in, and she joined Mitzi Roberts and Beth Silverman for a lunch near the courthouse with some of the other jurors, one of the surviving victims, and members of the murdered victims' families. We all took a walk downtown and went to lunch. And we were all really excited over the fact that a bunch of females took him down. That was something that we definitely made a point to uh, celebrate. After the verdict, the only thing left for Sam Little were his appeals. And observers of the case put the chances of a successful appeal as somewhere between a long shot and a no shot. In late 2014, Little made his first statement in court at his sentencing. Hobbled by diabetes and in a wheelchair at 74 years old, he still denied involvement in the murders and even attempted to play the race card by calling the trial a legal lynching. This conviction was brought on by lies and liars, coached by liars. Little remained defiant and shouted at family members of the victims when they stood in court and read victim impact statements that called him a sociopath. And I look at him, has no conscience, no soul, to take a life, to take a life from people. Then Judge George Lamelli delivered the sentence, citing the brutality of the crimes. The crimes involve great violence, cruelty, and viciousness. Lomelli sentenced Little to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. At the end of the hearing, before being wheeled back to a cell, Sam Little glanced over at his nemesis at the prosecution table. Mitzi Roberts held his hateful gaze, then raised her hand and waved goodbye. But as it turned out, it would be a long goodbye for Sam Little. I'm Michael Connolly, and you've been listening to Murder Book. We'll continue the story in the next episode when the man who shouted, I didn't do it, in court, decides to confess to more murders than anybody ever expected. I want to thank our listeners, our sponsors, and our consultants. Murder Book is produced and edited by Terrell Lee Langford. Music is provided by Grace Kelly, including our theme song, By the Grave. Post-production services are provided by Authentic, and Emma Kikuchi is post-production supervisor. Jane Davis is in charge of our social media, and if you want to see photos and other material from the case, go to murderbookpodcast.com. Remember, subscribe to the podcast at applepodcast.com slash murderbook if you want to be alerted to new episodes and other announcements. And if you have a friend who likes true crime podcasts, make sure you tell them about this one. Finally, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. This is Michael Connolly saying thanks for listening. Thank you.